Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Welcome to episode 24 to our solstice wonderland. Today we're going to talk about the winter solstice and a little bit about what animals are doing this time of year, uh, how we can enjoy this time of year, how we can uh, get outside even though it's not summer. Solstice is one of my favorite things to celebrate this time of year, of course, if you celebrate Christmas or any of the holidays that are around this time, there's so many in many different religions. So if you celebrate any of those, I think solstice is a nice way to be able to take a step outside and like ignore all the other things happening. So I love solstice, but we couldn't do it with just me and Sarah. So we did ask John to join us today. So John, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi guys, um, my name is John Woodworth and I am the NSA Horticultural Assistant, but I did get my degree in fisheries and wildlife, so I do like a little bit of animal science stuff and I love plants and trees, um, so hopefully we can talk about what animals are doing right now and how we can do our best to um, ensure that they make it through the winter uh, scot-free. And John is our resident um, herp expert, herpetologist expert, which is reptiles, amphibians. Sarah's laughing at me, and I don't know why, <laughs> but I love it. A lot of, herp yeah, herpy. <laughs> it's not diseases. No. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, no. Yeah, Reptiles, so, amphibians. Is there other things in herpetology? No, that? just those. Yeah. No, uh, turtles, snakes, frogs, salamanders, mm-hmm. mostly. Yeah, so when we have questions about that, we always go to John. <laughs> and he helps us out. If, uh, if I find myself going to too many examples that are reptiles, I'm sorry. Uh, but that's just what I know best. So, And it's kind of interesting. I think we all know a little bit about what mammals do in the winter. But I know nothing about what a lizard does in the winter. But before we get to animals, Hannah, can you define for us what the solstice is? Yes, so we're going to talk a little bit about solstice and equinox because you can't have one without the other. Well, you can't have anything in this world without anything else (laughs) like that. So I just listened to a podcast yesterday that Neil deGrasse Tyson was on. I am not going to do as good of a job explaining (laughs) astrophysics as he is. But um, solstice and equinox are both terms that um, help us understand the world's position in rotation with the sun and in um, orbit, right? Fun thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson did teach me in this podcast yesterday is that it's not that the Earth orbits the sun. It's that the sun and the Earth have a have a attraction to each other, and so they orbit each other. It just happens that the sun's in the middle. And I have never heard it explained that way, and I found it very interesting. I'm now extremely confused. I can't picture this. Maybe I'll find I'll find a video. Can I find a video that explains this? I'm sure you can. You could also listen to that podcast if you wanted to. It's long. That's just like one little piece of it. <laughs> so, yeah, so we'll see. Um, 
you can cut this out, but another fun thing he taught was like, you think that the space station, you know, because you see pictures from the space station and they're floating, right? The astronauts, or if they're on a anything, anything. Um, and you think that that's because they're away from the Earth's gravity, but apparently that's not what's making them weightless and float. It's because they are traveling at the right velocity so that they're constantly free falling compared to the Earth's gravity. And so that's why they're floating. I just learned two new things. I did not know either of those things. And you have now solidified my lack of desire to ever go into space. (laughs) Yeah, I never want to go to space either, but um, I find it absolutely fascinating. So, you know, do some Neil deGrasse Tyson looking up if you want to. But let's get back to solstice and equinox. So coming up soon is the winter solstice. And we're going to talk a lot about winter solstice traditions and different ways that you can celebrate and spend time outside. But what's interesting about the solstice is that the winter solstice is the longest night of the year. Now, to be clear, winter solstice in the northern hemisphere is what's happening um, for us here in Nebraska or if you're in the northern hemisphere. If you're in the southern hemisphere, what we would call the winter solstice is actually your longest day. It's the longest Mm. sunlight. Okay, because remember, northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere, these seasons are flipped. And that has to do with the tilt of the Earth's axis. So fun. You guys, I love space and and I love I'm so glad I'm getting to talk about this. Okay, so the summer solstice is the longest day for the northern hemisphere when we're talking about it. Right. So it's flipped. You got to just remember that. So what's an equinox? The fun thing about equinox is it's the same no matter what hemisphere you're in. Because equinox means equal. So it's where day and night are the same length. Hmm. There you go. So you're getting all of your things. And all of this... That is, I feel like that should have been so obvious based on the word equinox. <laughs> I'm feeling very silly for not getting that. <laughs> Just like equator, right, is the center, all of that good stuff. So it's just one thing to keep in mind if you're ever like, I don't understand why this is happening. It all has to do with the tilt of the earth as it's rotating because our earth doesn't sit straight up and down, north pole, south pole, right? It has a little bit of of a degree tilt, and then it's also orbiting the sun. These are important things. And those are what causes all the solstices and the equinox and all of those things. So in the Northern Hemisphere, the winter solstice happens on December 21st. That's when we experience it, okay? And they do set an exact time. In Central Time, it's like 347 this year. I don't know what that means. Is it the same date every year or does it change? It is the same date every year, yes. That's interesting. So you can remember all of that. That's really great. So here's, we'll go through all the dates here. So the vernal equinox, which would be what people would call probably like spring equinox. That's what vernal is, um, which also reminds me of vernal ponds, which are Mm. ponds that appear in the spring. Fun. Vernal witch hazel is the one that blooms in the spring. Common witch hazel blooms in the fall. 
Oh, we're getting into terminology here. <laughs> that happens on March 21st. March 21st, every year. Summer solstice, June 20th or 21st. So actually they do just a little bit, but it has to, it's because, are you counting the day or are you counting the night, right? Right. So summer solstice is the longest day of the year. Autumnal equinox, fall, right? September 23rd, and that starts autumn, fall. And then, of course, winter solstice, as we said, December 21st or 22nd, shortest day, longest night. And it marks the start of the winter. And one thing to keep in mind, then, is once you get to the winter solstice, you there's nowhere to go but up. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the longest night. So once you hit that, the days are going to start getting longer. It doesn't feel like it because especially here in Nebraska, it gets colder. Right. Right. But the days do get longer. That's good to hear. As someone who loves the sun and to be outside, um, it's hard when the sun goes down when you're at work still and uh-huh. you, you go home in the dark. Yeah. Right. That's never fun. Yeah. Or still in class or at school. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. When I ran the after school programs, it was always hard when it was like, oh, we're getting out. Like kids are going home now and it's dark. <laughs> so they can't even play outside. So those are some facts about the equinox and the solstice. We can get into celebrations, but does anyone have any questions before we move on? So... How does that figure into when we decide that the seasons start and end? Because I know we can say, like, there's spring and summer and fall based on, like, our school year calendar. But then there's also, like, the lunar seasons? No, that's not right. What do they call it? The seasons figured by nature. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so each of these days marks the start of a different season. So the winter solstice marks the start of winter that's why it gets colder so it is the beginning and the um autumnal equinox is the beginning of fall so that's how it all gets split up of course you're gonna see weather and different things that looks oh it feels like spring for instance the spring equinox is in march we know in nebraska different parts of nebraska we are still getting snow sometimes right (laughs) (laughs) in march so it might not feel like spring but when you look at like i don't even know astronomically (laughs) i guess is that no i I don't know scientifically (laughs) say that it is spring or it is summer whatever (laughs) you're in it's um it's interesting to think about that um from an animal perspective because a lot of it has to do with obviously not dates because they don't have a calendar that says December 21st, um, but it has to do with photo periods and how much light there is during the day. Um, And so that is what can spark hibernation um, or end hibernation when they're coming out, when the days are longer. Um, For one of our native venomous snakes, the prairie rattlesnake, they tend to come out um, after the first spring rain so after the first rain that doesn't freeze in the ground is when they normally come out of brumation. And so it's just cool to think about that, you know, we have these set dates, but that everything else that's living on Earth kind of goes by these different um, categories. Right. The different nature markers, because we see that in plants, too. One thing that helps 
tell trees when it's time to start changing colors deciduous trees is the length of the day so as the day gets shorter they go oh it's time gotta (laughs) start working on that leaf thing that i do every year and and that's what triggers it and during the summer that's what tells our plants when to flower a lot of them not all of them they have different triggers but some of them uh, will flower based on having to have had so many days longer than x number of hours before it will trigger the hormone that causes the flower bud to start forming so before that it's vegetative growth. They're just growing taller. Mm-hmm. And then once that trigger happens that we've had so many days longer than this many hours of sunlight, it'll switch. And now instead of a growth hormone, we have a reproductive hormone and we have flower parts being made. It's interesting that you bring that up because hormones obviously um, are the things that go through the animal's body for them to mark yeah. change to. And it's, so it's obviously different between plants and animals, um, but it's cool that both of them have that same function where it tells them that they need to do these things or not do these things yeah. in order to um, make their time better. Well, it is interesting because we kind of think of like the way it's told to us in storybooks as kids as that it's getting colder. So now the bears decide to go find a place to hibernate. Right. Well, they there's an internal signal to them. They don't have to sit there with their bear calendar going, all right, <laughs> it's time to hibernate. <laughs> And I will just tell you, if you are interested in that whole Neil deGrasse Tyson interview, it was Armchair Expert. It's only available on Spotify. It's experts on expert. You can check it out. Just, I didn't want to throw that out there and be like, now go find it yourself. <laughs> that's, that's where it was. Although he has his own podcast. So you can just search him in your any podcast app. But I'm sure you will find many, many. Many and I did put a word in to you, my husband, and I said, "Hey, you should bring Neil deGrasse Tyson to Lincoln." (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. He's very expensive. There's not many better teachers about space and all things space than Neil deGrasse Tyson. I think he could probably even teach me. And I, for some reason, space I find it fascinating, but also uh, it doesn't fit into my plant world and so I have trouble understanding it sometimes so I think he puts things in a way that you don't have to be a space expert I understood the explanation that Hannah was giving (laughs) about things from from what he taught her so yeah I'm kind of in the same boat where my mind is very animal and plant based and not very much um astrophysicism or anything mm-hmm. like that. I, I don't really understand that's beyond that. me a little yeah. bit. They didn't cover that. We did some chemistry in horticulture, but we didn't take <laughs> astronomy. <laughs> well, as you'll learn in the next episode, which is our book one that'll be coming out after this, um, I make it fit into everything because I talked about some space books in that episode and how gardening fit in. So, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. I forgot that that episode doesn't release till after this one. So I was like, well, everybody already knows that Hannah loves space, <laughs> but you don't. You don't know that Hannah loves space. <laughs> I didn't. Oh, we got talking to do. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about how to celebrate solstice then, because we are hosting solstice hikes at the NSA. We are hosting them at one of our affiliated sites, Prairie Pines, here in Lincoln. So you can find that on our website, which is plantnebraska.org. Hopefully it's not sold out by the time you hear this, because 
We have limited tickets because I'm leading the hikes and I can only make sure so many people don't get lost at night on a hike. So we can't just have tons of people there. Right. But that doesn't mean you can't do your own things to celebrate. So let's talk about it. First of all, go for a hike, go for a walk, a night hike on solstice. It sounds, when I talk to people about it, they go, you must be out of your mind because it's the longest night and it's cold. So why are you going outside at night? Because it's the longest night and it's cold. (laughs) Okay, I do want to clarify one more space thing before we move on. So in my mind, which as we know is an interesting place sometimes, (laughs) I picture the solstice always being like a bright moonlit night. But that doesn't necessarily, we have no guarantee that we'll have a full moon with the solstice. Those two things don't have anything to do with each other. The solstice is us and the sun. That's correct. It's a very romanticized idea of it, of that moonlit night. Just kind of like a a white Christmas. Right. Which we almost never have. We are very good at icy Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) So I take it you're looking up the full moon for December. Okay. Um, Because... I love a night hike for that. You can get a really bright night if you're out on a moonlit night. And if we should happen to have some snow, it can, I mean, you're not even almost going to know you're on a night hike. But a fun night hike is actually the new moon night Mm. when you are completely reliant on uh, either your flashlight or the stars or other light. Because sometimes the moon is bright enough that you almost don't feel the loss of the sun but it's fun to be out in the woods when it's truly dark especially during the winter when there's no leaves above your head i feel like you can definitely see a lot better under the moonlight well and i think in the winter you can hear better outside so for the moon this so 2022 december in our area the full moon which is because apparently you can't have a full moon without naming it these days (laughs) so this one is the full cold moon the moon's temperature doesn't change people (laughs) (laughs) it's it's you got the light side and the dark side and the temperature that's where it's different that's another fun fact you the moon doesn't spin so the dark side's always dark the light side's always light there you go you just blew my mind what yeah (laughs) you just blew my mind and we haven't been to the dark side because it's too cold there's another Factory. Wow. Is that a song? The Dark Side of the Moon? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. People are going to murder you. By Pink Floyd? <laughs> Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd taught us things. Come Dad, on, if you're listening, I knew what that was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yes. Um, and the full cold moon will happen on December 7th. So by the time you're listening, that has passed. And we are past the full moon. And so right around solstice, we should have a new moon, actually. Yay. So we're, it's going to be pretty dark that night because a new moon means there's no moon in the sky that we see, although the moon doesn't go away. Okay, so that, yeah, so that night it will be pretty dark, which I think will be even more fun because also the best time for stargazing is mm. during a new moon. Because you don't have the light of the moon impacting your stargazing. And I really like to talk about the stars and the mythology behind the stars, um, especially on a solstice hike. And if you don't have an app to look at the stars, don't 
talk to me because <laughs> <laughs> my favorite app is Skyview and I have the light version. It is free and you hold it up. It's an augmented reality app, which just means that it's using your camera to show you what you're looking at, but then it is um, outlining the constellations or the different planets that you can see in the sky at that point. So if you're ever like, oh, what's that really bright star? I don't know it. You can just hold your phone up and it'll say that's Venus. So that's fun. It will also show you where the International Space Station's at, which is super fun. That is cool. Being a city kid from Omaha, I never got to really see stars that much. Um, But when I went out to Ogallala for a fall break class, the stars out there were some of the best I've ever seen. Um, and some kid had that app where he was looking at it and it totally changed my view because, you know, you can't see any, but then when you're looking at that, you're like, Oh my gosh, that's where those stars are supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to look like. (laughs) We actually have like world known, um, stargazing in Nebraska. People travel to Valentine Mm -hmm. and a lot of the sand hills because you can get away from the light pollution. Um, so we have some really neat like uh, astronomy events that will happen throughout the whole year. They don't just do them in the summer. They'll do them through the whole year and through the sand hills um, to come look at look at Nebraska's stars. Yeah, that's so cool. Which is also why I have my Christmas lights on a timer so that they're not on all night because I don't want to contribute to light pollution. So they're on when I think people might be looking. And then I turn them off on a timer. So do your part on light pollution. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, electricity costs can, can play into it, too. Okay, so let's celebrate solstice. We talked about walks. You can go pretty much anywhere that's open. The tough part is a lot of parks, public parks, do close at sundown. So I would recommend doing a Google search to see if anyone is doing solstice hikes or staying open late on solstice so that you can celebrate in that way. But do make sure to check um, if you plan to do a hike that the park's going to be open or especially if it's a park that doesn't have gates so you could still get in. You need to check the times because you can get in trouble (laughs) for walking outside of the times. So just... Keep remember that and and keep an eye on it. But even a walk in your neighborhood is worth doing. One of my favorite places in Lincoln to go hiking during the winter is winter or is um, Wilderness Park, mm-hmm. just because it's so open um, that you can really go off the trails with ease and you can kind of just get lost out there. And that's definitely one of my favorite things to do. However, if this is the first time you've gone hiking. Solstice is a dark night, and I would recommend that you stick to either trails or parks that you know, or that you maybe invite somebody along who is an experienced hiker who knows how to navigate trails. That's great advice. So, great. So you could go on a hike. We have other ideas, people. Let's first, can we talk about some traditional Mm -hmm. celebrations throughout the world? Because... Winter solstice is widely celebrated across the world um, as an important day in many traditions. So I'm going to pull up a few because, of course, 
we have to think about like the Netherlands and all those places. It's dark a lot there. Um, so that is an important one. And that one is called, I'm looking it up, St. Lucia's Day or Lucia. I've heard it both ways. Lucia is what I've heard. Okay. And Sarah's heard Lucia. So however you want to say it, I'm sure the saint probably doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a festival of lights. And that's a, that's something that you see across the world um, with solstice is that most are celebrating in some way, bringing light to a dark night. So this is the festival of light celebrated in Scandinavia, right around solstice. And it's now meant to honor St. Lucia, which who was a Christian martyr Um, But it was incorporated with earlier Norse solstice traditions. And, you know, so if you are of Viking descent, um, it might be important to you. You might have some traditions that have been passed down for generations based on that as well. So that was things like lighting fires to ward off spirits during the longest night. Girls dress up in white gowns with red sashes and wear wreaths of candles on their heads in honor of St. Lucia. And this is something that I remember... um, kind of we I don't know if we celebrated it but we did know about it from my Danish heritage um and I think we made wreaths with candles for St. Lucia at one point so there you go there's one the favorite part my favorite part of my Danish heritage is the Kringle that you eat around this time did you ever celebrate St. Morton's Day we did not know that was Uh, one of my favorites from Danish but also because I love duck Ah, and it's duck is very good. <laughs> you eat duck in that because that um, there was a massacre because the ducks gave away the position of mm. a military. <laughs> so they eat duck on that day. <laughs> but not anymore, right? You don't do that anymore. I do. Oh. Well, I don't celebrate it as much, but I still eat duck. There you go. So there we go. Why not? Why not? Okay. Another fun one is the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia. And it is um, most closely linked with the modern celebration of Christmas, which, of course, is right around solstice. And we know that probably what we Christians celebrate, you know, the birth of Christ at Christmas probably didn't happen in what we now expect to be December. Um, It got moved around. But, you know, people move their birthdays all the time. <laughs> so um, this festival happened around this same time winter solstice and celebrated the end of planting season. So of course mm-hmm. for us that doesn't quite work because we yeah we needed to end planting long ago. So there were games and feasts and gift giving for several days. I would like to change my celebration of gift giving for several days <laughs> that would be fun <laughs> um, and the social order was inverted so at that time there were slaves there are still slaves but we don't need to get into that um, and slaves did not work and were briefly treated as equals during Saturnalia okay so here's one from indigenous peoples of the US what we now know as the US so soil S-O-Y-A-L and I am likely saying it wrong and it is probably because it was originally in the Hopi language, which I don't read, unfortunately. Um, But it is the winter celebration of the Hopi Indians of northern Arizona. That's what we would know it as now. Ceremonies and rituals included purification, dancing, and sometimes gift giving. 
And at the time of the solstice, Hopi welcome the Kachinas, protective spirits from the mountains. Prayer sticks are crafted and used for various blessings and other rituals. So there you go. I will cover one more from China. Dong Zi. And once again, I am sorry, but I don't speak Chinese. So I really hope that I'm saying, saying that correctly. But that's the arrival of winter. And it's an important festival in China. It is time for the family to get together and celebrate the year that they've had. And it's based on the traditional Chinese celestial calendar. And the holiday generally falls between the 21st and the 23rd of December. It is thought to have started as an end of harvest festival with workers returning from the fields and enjoying the fruits of their label labors with family. And there are often special foods that are enjoyed by all. That was some great information. Um, and I just think it's really cool to see that people from all different walks of life and cultures kind of come together and celebrate. I, I don't want to say the same things, but a lot of the same ideals. Um, yeah. So that's just super cool to hear about. Okay, I'm curious. I know that you just looked up a list of those and picked a good variety, but they were all Northern Hemisphere. So was that on purpose or was it a coincidence? That is mostly on purpose because in the Southern Hemisphere, they're celebrating the summer solstice. So those would be different celebrations. Well, right now, but they have a winter solstice, right? Yes, I have a feeling this is due to my Google being in North America. (laughs) so it's probably basing a few things on on based on location settings uh they did have a celebration in there that is in antarctica and that is because we have populated antarctica with scientists that mostly come from the northern hemisphere for you know because we don't need to get into that (laughs) science um in the discrimination in science but anyways so mostly from Northern Hemisphere. So they celebrate winter solstice in Antarctica, but it is the longest day. So they have the most light that day. So they celebrate that at that time. Interesting. I was just curious. I mean, I assume that there there were uh, winter solstice celebrations in the Southern Hemisphere. I just didn't know if you were specifically picking it since we're at, in winter now. But... I found a few ideas that um, are maybe just more how to enjoy the long dark and maybe just a little bit more family friendly, too. So uh, one idea, and I love this idea, is to spend the day of or the evening, the night of winter solstice, having no electric light. So you Mm. could light everything with candles or lamps and, uh, you know. That'll give you enough light to function by, but not the overwhelming light that can let us forget it's even nighttime. Right. I definitely need help with that. I need to put my phone down. Yeah. You could put your, you could do no phones or you could do like dark mode on your phone. You could just do, yeah, no technology. Um, Another, a lot of them center around feeding animals because, you know, once we hit winter solstice, we're starting to head into the starving time for animals. So you can do like cranberry chains and popcorn strings and bird feeders. Uh, And then oranges seem to feature heavily. And I don't know if that's because they're a traditional Christmas gift or if it's because they look like the sun. I think at this point in... Time. It is because oranges are cheap and easy. <laughs> um, 
you know, I'm sure in the past it wasn't as easy to get them. I don't know. You know, there's something to be said about global shipping, basically, because oranges were easier to ship. They don't bruise as easily and they last a long time. And so I think you could get oranges. But um, especially now we see oranges are in season in the south. So it's easy. I did not think of that because now we have all of North America or all of the U.S. is kind of local food to us in a way. So because we do oranges for St. Nicholas Day because traditionally they were a really big treat at Christmas. They were expensive, Mm. but available, unlike other things. But I saw some different ideas, not necessarily for eating the oranges, but you can do like the the pot of boiling water on your stove where you cut up orange slices and cinnamon and let it boil all day or simmer just to make your house smell good. Or this one is called orange pomanders. Pomanders, I don't know how to say it, but it sounds like it would smell really good where you take an orange and you stick cloves Mm. into it and then you set them around your house kind of like you might with potpourri. I've done that. It is tedious work, <laughs> but it is it is fun. Tired hands at the end. Well, it's suggested as a craft to keep kids busy for the night. So <laughs> maybe it's not um, thrilling work, but you can make your own designs in them. Yes, it's the original light bright. <laughs> um, as you you talked about, Sarah, the um, stringing food up on trees or something for animals, which reminds me of a book that we are, I think, yeah, we talked about it in the upcoming book episode, but I'm going to preview it here, which is The Night Tree mm. by Eve Bunting. And it is about a family that goes out on Christmas Eve, but I think you should do it on solstice where they go out and they string up food on the tree for the wildlife and then they find a little spot to hide and then they watch and see Mm -hmm. what comes to eat it. That's very cool. That does sound cool. We did a cranberry string with our cranberries that we had left over from Thanksgiving and uh, luckily the winds kind of blew it off the branch where we put it. So I haven't had to tell Silas that nothing has eaten it. It's moved, (laughs) so he thinks something has been eating it. I think the birds are waiting for it to ferment. That's my hypothesis. If you are going to do that, be careful of the string that you use. Don't use like fishing line or something like that. That's going to get caught up in birds or animals. And make sure you use something that's going to break down. Very good point. Yeah, we used 100% cotton thread uh, because I, I wanted it to be something that would fall apart, especially if if nothing ate it. I wanted it to kind of rot on the tree so the cranberries weren't just forever hanging in my oh, tree. Right. And then Silas is not very old. So I used a yarn needle, which is a really big plastic needle that's not sharp so that, uh, you know, I had to start sticking them on, but he could push them through and it would go through popcorn really easily. So if you if you have little kids and you're like, I'm not giving my kids a bunch of needles, that sounds like a terrible (laughs) idea. Yarn needles can be pretty blunt, but still are thin enough to go through a lot of foods. Okay, so the next thing that is closely tied to winter solstice is the Yule log tradition. Has anyone have either of you done a Yule log in no. the past? Okay, no. Oh, you're in for a treat. Enlighten you, me. You should do one. And some people are like, is she talking about that cake? 
No, I'm talking about <laughs> the actual log. There is a cake that is um, a. It's I think in the U.S. mostly it's called Yule log cake, um, also called a bouche de Noël, um, because I think that's the French for it. If you watch. Um, Great British Bake Off, especially the holiday edition. I think they make a few of them. I did make one last year, and it is so pretty that I am going to finally remember to send the picture for the show notes so so that you can (laughs) see my beautiful Yule Log cake. I will believe it when I see it. (laughs) You promise a lot of pictures, and I have to remind you. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Um, definitely make the cake if you want to. It's uh, not as hard as it sounds, and it turns out really beautiful, and it's worth doing. But we're talking about the actual log, okay? So since it is the longest night of the year, lots of before electricity and all these modern ways we have to heat and provide light, you would look for the biggest log that would provide heat and light all night when you needed it and that was your yule log Mm -hmm. and it also became a tradition to since it is the longest night burn something along with that yule log like something that you want to leave behind in that year so now a lot of people write a note it can be long it can be a sentence whatever it is that goes you tuck it in with the yule log that's like just here's my troubles, trials, and tribulations from the past year, and you burn it with the log as a symbolic way to kind of let go of it all. And I think that that is another wonderful tradition. But you can also decorate your Yule log. So some people will add things that can burn safely (laughs) to it, and some people don't burn their log. It is more of a symbolic thing, um, because especially if you don't have a place to burn something, you need to do it safely. (laughs) Um, And so they will decorate it all up with winter and um, nature-y things to kind of represent a gift to nature and respecting nature during that time with their Yule log. So if you have a place to burn, I would recommend picking a Yule log. As a reminder, don't just go out into the forest and pick up a log. Use actual firewood (laughs) that is dry, another important thing, and write a little note about your things that you want to leave behind and have a fresh start come December 22nd. I have a serious suggestion, but first, I have to say that your comment reminded me of the Friends uh, Valentine's Day episode, (laughs) when they try to burn the boyfriend's past and summon the fire department instead. (laughs) (laughs) Do not include alcohol in your Yule log. It will burn just fine as it is. (laughs) So, my suggestion is if you don't have a way to burn things safely, if you live in an apartment or it's it's just not going to fit into your plans... I was going to suggest putting on the Netflix Fire, which you can also mm. find on YouTube. You can find a Yule Log version. You can find a Birch Log version. You can find the Gryffindor Common Room version. Oh. You can't. <clears throat> I use the Slytherin. Common yes, I know Hannah. Hannah wouldn't be caught in the Gryffindor Common Room. So there are all four Common Rooms available. <laughs> <laughs> but you could sit in front of that fire and eat your Yule cake. I did not know Yule cake was a thing, but I'm a fan of cake, so I may have to try it. 
Knowing your baking skills, you could definitely make one. (laughs) Yeah. And I bet Silas would have fun with it, too. Oh, yeah. Definitely. We had that um, YouTube fireplace on the other night when we were reading books in the living room. Mm -hmm. And I was placeboed into thinking that it was way hotter than it was. It does. It makes you feel warm. It really does. Yeah. The cra- it might be the crackling. I don't know what it is, actually. But I genuinely was like, who turned the warm. heat on? Yeah. yeah. I So Silas does like baking with me. However, he thinks that the Netflix fire is the most boring movie ever. He's told me <laughs> that. Uh, Mom, this movie is... I don't like this movie. But I think with cake, he could be convinced to enjoy it. Uh, and it just... It just that's the feeling. And what I like to do is I get those wood wick candles mm. and one that smells kind of fiery and I burn it with my Netflix fire and then it really feels like you have a fire going. You have everything going for you. Yeah. yeah. You got to work to be cozy sometimes. <laughs> Sarah is one of the work to be cozy the most that I know because she also gets the uh, battery operated candles and has them set so that they turn on when it starts so it makes it cozy when she walks in the door. Wow. And that's just living on a whole nother level. It is. I need that in my life. I forgot. I need to actually get those out. I keep a couple out all year, but I get like a bunch out for Christmas. And what they are is they're like, Six hours on, 18 hours off, or whatever adds up to 24 hours. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> I think I got it. And so whenever you turn them on, they'll run for six hours, and then they'll turn off for the rest of the day, and they'll just keep doing that. And so, I just, yeah, it just makes me feel cozy when I come home from work, and it's already dark. And uh, it's also lazy and flameless because mm. it's safe if I weren't home or, you know, I have a kid playing. Right. Uh, rowdily as they do. I don't have to worry about actual fire. Right. My girlfriend needs one of those because I swear sometimes we come ba- I come back home and the- there's candles lit and I'm like, when did you leave? Yeah. <laughs> because this has been going how long? Okay, Hannah shared a picture of her cake and Ooh. it is it is beautiful. Yeah, it is. It looks yeah. good. I want to bite oh, now. Yeah. And there's wine. I'm coming over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my Harry Potter Christmas tree in the back which last year I added a um, Hogwarts Express around the bottom, too. That's cool. It's so magical. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so now I think we've kind of talked about how humans can enjoy, refresh themselves, celebrate the solstice. But as Sarah mentioned, it's kind of the beginning of starvation season and really that season when it's going to make or break for animals. So John's going to talk to us a little bit about how animals make it through the winter, because I think there's a common misperception that there's two options. You leave or you hibernate, but that's not always the case. So John, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say the same thing where when you talk to people who maybe aren't in this world as much as we are, um, they tend to think that Everything is like a bear where it crawls in a cave and, you know, has the winter fat stored up. And We would run out of caves. Right, exactly. <laughs> There's not that many caves, guys. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that people think that every single animal goes into that state. Um, and I think the, the first thing I want to point out is that there are some animals that don't even, um, quote, unquote, hibernate or overwinter at all. Um, and that they actually stay active during the winter uh, because they have to actively find food um, to not starve. 
And a couple of those animals that you can see in Nebraska are going to be like white-tailed deer uh, and coyotes um, and like northern cardinals and red-bellied woodpeckers. So those two things are, are things that you can see around your bird feeders often. Um, What's the one that's brown all summer and then turns white? Like a weasel? A stoat or a weasel? Stoat, yeah. yeah. And they, they have different names, or at least to the fur collectors. Right. They have a name for the summer and a name for the winter, but it's the same animal. Right. I saw one this, this summer at Pioneers Park with a white coat. So I was wondering if that was an early change or if that was more of like a albinism or luciism type event going on. Interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Or if, yeah, or an early change or like... It forgot. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> its hormones were off. Yeah. Um, and then I guess I just wanted to say that there are many different strategies that animals use, and it's not just hiber hibernation or migration, although those are two. Um, but there are four strategies that biologists will typically talk to you about, um, and that, that is migration. So we see that, in, you know, the most famous one would be a monarch, where they go, they fly south into Mexico and, the, and Central America. Or the sandhill crane. Or right. the sandhill crane, yeah. Familiar with in Nebraska, right? You guys are missing like the most obvious, which is the goose. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's hibernation, obviously, and that typically that can be a, a wide used term, and not everything that slips into that slowed state can be considered hibernation. Um, that's you're tiptoeing with a lot of bio biological lines there. I don't know. There's a lot of things that, you know, little tiny tweaks that make the differences. Um, or like things that just sleep more in the winter to conserve energy. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, humans are definitely inclined to that. Yeah. Me. <laughs> I'm making excuses <laughs> for, <laughs> for how often I sleep in the winter. And I would point out there's a reason why our feasts as, as a culture for us happen in cold times, it's hardwired in us to eat more, just like with most animals. Yeah. When I looked at my scale this month, you know, it's a little <laughs> bit higher than it was in June, say, but yeah, it's just biology. You know, you got to put on a couple winter pounds. Everybody does it. Um, and then the third strategy would be to just t tough it out, like I was talking about, or to just be active the whole time, change your coat, your fur, so that it's thicker, um, put on that fat so that you have more insulation and fat to burn, uh, because it does get hard to find food at this time of the year. Um, and then the fourth one would be torpor, which is kind of just staying in on the, in the harsh conditions, so like a snow day. Think about it like a snow day for animals. Um, and then they'll go outside after the, the blizzard or the 60 mile an hour winter winds stop to find food. Um, and a lot of the, the common thing that animals do is they have hibernacula, which are, which are dens or underground tunnels or stuff like that. And you don't have to be hibernating. Um, you can come in and out of that. Um, and you see that in, you know, foxes, uh, different bird types, different insect types, reptiles, uh, a bunch of stuff. If you're looking for a children's book to talk about this, there's a great one called Over and Under the Snow. And it's a series, so they have Over and Under the Garden and Over and Under all kinds of things. But Over and Under the Snow shows a lot about how animals are surviving in the winter, what you're talking about here, and the different types of living situations they can be in. Right. I remember um, 
if anybody else read My Side of the Mountain, uh, it was about this boy who runs away from New York City and builds himself a house in the Appalachian Mountains, or Adirondack Mountains. Okay. Uh, but he discovers how the mice, like when they get the really deep mountain snows, the mice make roads that never exit the snow. So they're running around under there harvesting little seeds from the grasses, and they've got this whole network of roads to their nests, but they're never seen above the snow. And so, one, it's insulated under there. Snow's actually really insulating. Mm -hmm. I think we as humans think of snow as cold, but it's really insulating. And it protects them from predators because a brown mouse on top of the snow would be like a fast food sign right. to a hawk yeah. or an owl <laughs> so vocabulary moment for you that level where they create those tunnels that and under the snow it happens about when the snow reaches six inches or more and it is called the subnivian level subnivian there you go quick little terminology for you guys um it is interesting that you brought that up where they are finding seeds or foraging because a lot of animals change their diet um, throughout the seasons. So things that would eat, say, like berries or, you know, fruits, um, nuts, stuff like that in, in the summer are going to completely change their diet for the winter. And they typically go for um, like buds of trees and seeds of perennials. And they'll use a lot of that, the stuff that they can find, right? Because you're not going to be able to find a pecan or a hickory at that time. So The bulbs I planted in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> and for the higher fat content, too. I know my still my, my favorite laughing moment is the chickadees that eat fat off of a, a carcass. <laughs> uh, my father-in-law is a trapper. Mm. And so sometimes when we're out there in the winter, we'll ride along with him to check in. Um, they'll be like part of an animal that is usually it's a, it's a coyote because they will leave parts of things around. But we drove up one time and there's this all these little fluffy birds and I mean chickadees <laughs> are cute little birds. They're they little are. round puff mm -hmm. balls and I was like, oh look at all the cute birds. And my father in law was like, well go take a look at what they're eating and they're like ripping flesh off this animal carcass. <laughs> and I was like, oh you're not so cute. <laughs> but they weren't eating meat. Right. They're eating the fat because it helps them stay warm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a big part of you know the winter fat is just insulation. I mean a lot of times people think it's for energy which it can be for but if you're hibernating you don't need a lot of energy um, and your respiratory and heart rates slow down significantly um, so just yeah that fat content is really important just for you know keeping the cold out mm -hmm. and there are there is a difference between types of fats on things um, there's white fat which is typically, you know, just a fat that you'd get anytime. Um, and that's like what insulates your organs and is kind of like around your stomach areas. And then there's a brown fat, which is typically, I think, located towards the liver and spine, maybe. Um, but that is just like a quick burst of energy. So that's easily um, burnt, easily used. And a lot of animals that go through overwintering will use this fat for quick bursts of energy when they do need to go find food. That's really interesting. Okay, so I think it's easier to understand how mammals and birds make it through, 
But what is way harder, and I think a lot of people maybe think cold-blooded, which is the common term, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can explain to us more about that. Um, How do they make it through? Do they just die and hope that their eggs last? (laughs) How does it work? I mean, yeah, sometimes that is the harsh reality of it, right, is when you rely on the ambient temperature of the environment and the ambient temperature is negative 15 or 20. It's definitely hard for ectotherms and to uh, stay warm and to stay um, alive. Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't want to just cut. I'll just be blunt and stay alive. Um, but a lot of so a lot of people only talk about hibernation. And I feel like I've done an injustice to you guys by not explaining the difference. But hibernation is what you see in endotherms. And so things with fur and, and feathers and stuff like that. And that Things that can make their own warmth. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is, you know, through homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the slowing down of metabolic rates in order to survive winter. And they they enter an extended state of torpor or just like slowed respiration rate, slowed heart rate. Um, And a cool fact that I found was that woodchucks, which are a native Nebraska animal, their typical breaths per hour is 2,100. And when they're in hibernation, it's 10. So that's just something crazy to think about. To bring it back to space, research is being done to see if they can get humans into torpor so that they can travel long distances in space. Oh, that's cool. Based on the grin you had on your face, I thought you were going to ask if that their heart rate goes up any higher when they're chucking wood. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a real thing. It is. Um, and then bromation is only for ectotherms. Um, and that they still do slow down their metabolic rates and stuff. Um, but on warmer dates, they can actually break out of that state. So it's not like a super extended period um, because they do need to, you know, find water or sun themselves. So on a January day when maybe it's 65 and, you know, we're all outside enjoying it, there's other things enjoying it too, for sure. Um, They also like to do a thing called mass bromation, and we see this in garter snakes and prairie rattlesnakes, and that's when they den together and kind of huddle up to keep warmth inside. I mean, it's a lot easier when there's a thousand of you to keep the temperature up in the den than if there's only a couple. And so when you're walking around your land in western Nebraska and you stumble onto a thousand rattlesnakes, that's what's happening. They're tired and sluggish. It's okay. I've heard some really interesting stories from like um, journals from people when the West was first being explored of finding like balls of snakes in their wells. Oh, yeah. Because it would uh, probably appear to the snake to be like a cave or a crevice. And so they would try to dead in there and people would pull up their buckets and get a ball of snakes terrifying for some for me i would love that i know i think you just gave people a whole new thing to have nightmares about (laughs) (laughs) yeah one time i was on a trip with dennis ferraro who is the herpetologist and conservation biologist at the university here and we were on someone's property with boards and i'm pretty sure it was late november so it's starting to get cold things are starting to move underground um and he had a well in his yard and so Dennis lifted it and actually crawled into the well. Um, and he, I think he pulled out 
14 snakes when we found maybe four under the boards. So like obviously the concentration of snakes was a lot higher and he was down in this, you know, four by four space and you could just see the snakes like hanging and he was grabbing them one by one and it was a crazy sight. Yeah. The board. So the boards are, I think you taught us this earlier, are when you put out something to try to see if snakes will gather under it to make it easier for herpetologists to go out and see what kind of snakes are in a property. Right, yeah. And we just typically call those cover boards. And they're either wood or tin, aluminum. You know, people use old car hoods all the time. Um, And it's just like a space where things can hide from the sun. Um, But also when you use the metal ones, it's very hot still. So it's not like you're getting burned from the sun, but you're still heating yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they tend to congregate under those. I'm not afraid of snakes, but I am afraid of being in a four by four tunnel. That sounds terrifying, one. And two, to be clear, these were rattlesnakes. Not the ones in the tunnel. Okay. <laughs> he, he wasn't putting himself at that much of a risk. I think that they were black rat snakes. All right. So I've been waiting patiently this entire episode because before we started recording, you guys promised a story about turtles. Oh. Can we have the story of about course. turtles? <laughs> so aquatic animals, um, they tend to, so like amphibians and... Real quick, difference between turtles and tortoises. How do you go straight to aquatic with a turtle? So, the difference between turtles and tortoises, and I, I'm, I may not have the best scientific background in that, but we don't always be scientific. Okay, and apparently don't use English correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the difference is just that turtles need those those po- those annual ponds that you're talking about, um, and they'll you know lay their eggs in in and around those ponds and eat food from the ponds like fish and other things like that whereas tortoises are strictly land-based so they can't swim so if you ever find like a tortoise and you put it in the water it's going to die so please don't do that because we have seen a lot of people do that especially with like the pet trade and there's more tortoises that people leave in the in the landscape and expect them to do okay but a tortoise from arizona will not be okay in nebraska um They don't got a lot of water there. No. (laughs) Which is why they're a tortoise. Um, But yeah, so a lot of aquatic animals, and I don't want to get into fish because that is not my expertise, but I'm just talking about frogs and turtles. They will actually hibernate in the pond because a lot of times when a pond is deep enough, um, the temperature at the bottom is like a nice 40, whereas the temperature on the top is frozen. Uh, So they'll actually go to the bottom, and it's a lot easier for them to maintain higher body temperatures, obviously, if the ambient temperature is is higher. And so we actually see turtles go underwater for for the whole winter. And a lot of people are thinking, how do they get air? Well, I'm here to tell you that there's several ways that they can breathe. Um, And they have high concentrations of blood cells in and around their throat and their anus, and they actually exchange gas through their butt, basically. (laughs) This is my favorite fact to tell children. (laughs) They breathe out their butts. And they do. It's true. Um, So unlike a frog where their whole body is made up of these cells that can exchange carbon for oxygen, and we call that cutaneous respiration, 
um, but turtles only do it when they really need to. So when they can't go up for air is when they'll start doing that. Um, as for the frogs, though, they'll do the same thing where they'll kind of chill at the bottom and breathe through their air, breathe through their skin and, you know, um, survive that way. And there's actually a cool frog called the chorus frog in Nebraska. And they're the little ones that chill on the side of the ponds in the like the reeds and, and the aquatic grasses. They're very, very tiny, so they're hard to see. But they actually freeze completely because they don't go underwater. So they don't get that 40 degree, you know, which is a lot warmer. Um, they'll go under leaves or just try under rocks and stuff. And that most of the time, the temperature is a lot worse. So they actually freeze completely and their hearts and livers and, you know, vital organs have high glucose contents so that they don't freeze. So when you're looking at them and you touch them, their body is completely frozen, but it's actually the vital organs that are still running. Um, so when the spring comes, they essentially unthaw when I think that's the coolest thing ever. Animals are just so cool. Nature is just so cool. Because the Cope's gray tree frog does something very similar, right? Which yeah. is another Nebraska frog. But of course, it lives in the trees, so it's right. not going to go under water. And it has basically its body creates a, a version of antifreeze. Right. Mm-hmm, to keep those vital things from freezing. Because as a reminder, when water freezes, it expands. So you don't want your cells to explode because you freeze. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, it does nearly the same thing. But yeah, you're right. It's just an arboreal species so it lives in the trees and stays in the trees and doesn't come down often so it has to figure out has to find different ways than than everything else on the ground all right it's time for our favorite segment of the show which we completely and totally forgot as per usual to tell john about that's fun. <laughs> so we end every episode by talking about the plant that's on our mind. Okay. During the summer, we do what's blooming. But right now, not a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talk about the plant that's on our mind. So to give you a moment, Hannah and I will start. Okay. So Hannah, what plant is on your mind this week? So I have a plant to update you on. As I reported earlier, I had some German ivy that was in the ICU. I had cut off multiple arms. I am pleased to report that the arms have re-sprouted and that it's looking great. (laughs) So it is coming back. It has a few little new sprouts and the arms that I left are looking better. (laughs) So even though I did it all wrong, which we did validate on the podcast, it is working out. So that just goes to show you, do what you're going to (laughs) do. So mine this week... Well, really, this this month or season is Camellia sinensis, which is my favorite beverage, tea. Because <laughs> it's time to uh, have both my caffeine fix and my assistance warming myself come from the same place. So <laughs> that's what's on my mind in all varieties and flavorings. How about you, John? So is this a plant that like I grew or just that? It doesn't um, matter. You got both from us. So okay. just what what's making you happy? What what are you thinking about? Might be something you have, use, or want to have. Okay. Um, 
Well, personally, my favorite conifer. So when you go outside and you're looking for green in this time of the year, the one thing that you, you're going to go towards is conifers. And being from Nebraska, we don't have very we don't have as many as other states do have. But my favorite that is very prevalent on campus is the eastern white pine, Pinus strobus. Um, and I love how fluffy the the needles are and how big the pine cones are. So you can really, really tell when you're looking at a, at a white pine because it makes you just want to kind of wrap up in the needles and like as like a fuzzy blanket. And the pine cones are like bigger than my hand and maybe even my forearm sometimes. Like they're huge. Um, so I always love walking around campus and, and, you know, looking at those and just being like, wow, you're a crazy creation and you are still living when everything else is taking a pause. What a beautiful way to end our solstice episode. So thank you everybody for listening and for joining us. Please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you are listening to us. Share us with your friends. We would love to have new listeners and hopefully you enjoy it enough that you want to tell other people about it. Thank you for listening. Send us your questions if you have any, especially now about how turtles breathe out their butts. We might have more questions about that. We can ask John. Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are both programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum.